Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Thank you so much for joining us online today. We've been doing this series entitled Shift. We've been talking about how we live in a world that's an ever-changing world, but we have a never-changing God. We've heard some great sermons so far, just talking about what it is to be a follower of Jesus during a time like this. And today you're going to be blessed. We've got a great speaker. He's a professor, he's a pastor, Dr. Ray Ortland. I remember first being introduced to, to Ray Ortland's ministry when we were reading a book as elders. It's just called The Gospel. Now, he's written a bunch of books. There's a, over eight of them. I'm sure they're all great, but I recommend that you check out the book, The Gospel. It really influenced us as a church. And so we started to, to investigate his ministry, invited him to come and speak here. We were excited about having him, but today he's going to join us online and preach to us in this series. I'm looking forward to what he has to say to us today. If you want to know a little bit more about him, he's been married for 45 years to his wife. And uh, they've got four kids, 13 grandkids. And like I said, he's written some books. He's been a professor. He's pastored for over 28 years. And he currently serves at his church, Emmanuel Church, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, where he was the pastor and now still continues to serve that church just because he's a faithful follower and lover of Jesus. And so I'm looking forward to him opening the word for us this morning. Let me pray for us and pray for him. Father, thank you so much that we can gather in your name even though we're scattered in so many different places, and that you can speak. You knew the exact message you wanted to speak to each one of our hearts today. And I pray you'd remove distractions, and you'd open our hearts. And I, and I pray for Pastor Ray as he, he speaks to us today, God, that you just bring the truth, confront where confrontation needs to take place, encourage where encouragement needs to take place, rebuke and correct, and do your work through your word, by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi, I'm Ray Ortland, and I would much rather be with you today, present with you. Uh, we're limited by this COVID-19 pandemic, but I'm thankful we have this technology so we can be together as much as possible right now. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39? Romans 8, 31 through 39. Here's the question before us today. Will God ever stop loving us? Is there ever a moment we need to worry about out in the future when God might say, I'm out. I mean, I knew you would be a headache, but I really didn't count on this. I mean, really? And uh, he kind of shrugs his shoulders, turns around, walks away. Do we need to worry about that? Do we need to wonder about God's commitment to us? Will there ever come a moment when God will abandon us? That question is in all our minds, and that question is answered in the Bible. It's answered here in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39 changes how we see our lives, how we size up our chance at life. And there are basically two ways for us to see our lives. One way was expressed well by Jean-Paul Sartre in his play, No Exit. He said, you are your life and nothing else. So what did he mean by that? He meant, you are what you make of yourself. You are the sum total of all your choices. You can never relax because you have nothing else to fall back on. 
You have no excuses. Um, nothing beyond yourself belongs to you. You are your life, and nothing else is factored in. And before we had Jesus, Sartre was right about us. But there's another way for us to see our lives, and it's real now through Christ. We're no longer trying to prove our superpowers. God has given us Christ. So in Christ, there is more to us than us. He lived for us the worthy life we've never lived. He died for us the atoning death we don't want to die. We have no excuses. We have no defense. We admit that there is no justification in this moral universe for people like us, but Christ has given himself to us. He has given himself for us, and we have received him with the empty hands of faith. So this permanent gift from God through Christ to us Sartre said to us, you are your life and nothing else. God says to us, you are in Christ and nothing else. So Christianity doesn't start with our love for God and us proving ourselves to God. Christianity starts with God's love for us and God proving himself to us. Christianity is all about the massive love of God, the permanent love of God, the wise love of God the surprising love of God, the successful love of God in Christ. The love of God in Christianity is not a weak, pleading love that might not work out. Romans 8 is so clear. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. We do sin against him. We sin against the obvious teachings of the Bible. We sin against the Lord when we're capable of a better choice. We we sin against the help of the Holy Spirit. We, we hurt each other. We hurt the ones we love the most. And not even that stops God. Those moments in our lives, the worst moments, are when God loves us the most with the deepest, most tender commitment. The love of God is his powerful commitment to you, and nothing can stop his commitment to you, not even you. So here we are in Romans chapter 8, verses 1, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? He asks in verse 31. In other words, in verses 1 through 30 of the chapter, we're gazing at this landscape of the love of God. And now Paul asks the, the big wraparound question, so what are we seeing here? And what's our takeaway? And Paul starts asking really hard questions about the love of God. He is not protecting some itty-bitty little gospel against the hard realities of life. Paul is unleashing against everything that's opposed to us, everything that will rob us of our happiness. He is unleashing this massive gospel hope against everything that scares us. And he asks four unanswerable questions about the love of God here in verses 31 through 39. First question. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Hmm. I like the defiance of that question. I like the attitude in it. 
I don't sense any victimhood or self-pity. There's no hand-wringing, just bright confidence in God. And that is where God takes us through the gospel. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we're not just asking the question, who can be against us? There's a lot against us. The world is against us. The predominant ethos of our age uh, makes it hard to treat God as real. The devil is against us. He's the accuser. Um, we ourselves are against our, our, ourselves at times. And if we try to go up against all that thinking, you know, this time I'm really going to prove myself. This time I really mean it. <laughs> We're kidding ourselves. So Paul doesn't ask who's against us. The question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? So we don't deserve him. But to God, that isn't a reason to love us less. To God, that's a reason to love us more. God loves and is for the undeserving. And all that God is doing in the world today, God is for you. If God is for us, For example, let's just think hypothetically right now. Um, here we are in the USA. Let's th just project our minds out to, to Europe somewhere. Let's think Paris, France. Okay, there's a good chance that right now somewhere in Paris, whatever time it is uh, in Paris, there's a, a bus on the streets of Paris pulling over to the curb to pick up passengers and let people off. That mini event in Paris, France, right now, is in God's intricate, interconnected patterning of reality. That event in Paris is for you. If God created all things, then all things have some kind of relationship with God. And if all things have a relationship with God, then all things have some sort of interconnected relationship with one another. So whatever is going on in Paris is, if God is for you, is somehow, however complicated, however distant, is flowing back to your advantage right now. That's the reality you live in. We can go up against anything. We're going to be okay. Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where did God not spare his own son? At the cross. What happened at the cross, the Father gave him up. The Father abandoned him. When everything was on the line, our sin was poured out on God's Son at the cross, and God did not rescue him. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, Jesus wasn't saved so that we would be saved. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, here is Paul's question about that. 
How will God not freely give us all things? After God gave his mega gift in his son, is God going to nickel and dime us now? Is that what we should expect, a reluctant God who's going to hold out? The point is, if God gave up his son for us all, there is no limit to God's love for us. We may wonder, at what point will God say to me, at what point might I provoke him so much that I wear him out? At what point might God say, this is too much. It's costing me too much. I'm out. Will God ever say that to us? Why? It's unthinkable. But why? Because Jesus was abandoned so that we will never be abandoned. God is as committed to us as he is committed to his son because he gave his son for us. We are in God's love just as deeply as God's son is in God's love. It has nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do with the cross. I like to think of it this way. God is rich with love, and he is a big spender. So God does not limit his love for you. God unlimits his love for you. And having given us his son, he plans to give us everything. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, what's inside all things? Well, for starters, God will give you forever, in eternity, a sinless personality. You'll finally be yourself as never before. You'll be free. No shame. You'll be unleashed. You will have an immortal body, incapable of injury, pain, death, or even fatigue. You will live in a renewed universe that will sparkle as never before. You will be sprinting through the new heavens and the new earth with a renewed humanity from every ethnicity, language group, nationality, background, and so forth. You're going to go through eternity meeting new people, and every single person you meet will be your brand new best friend. Everyone will like you. And you will be in the presence of God, and you will be happy, human, and free forever. That's your future because of the cross. I don't know what to say, what any of us could say, except thank you, Lord. Third question, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, there's a lot of condemning religion in the world today, some of it even in the name of Jesus, but the gospel says that God does not condemn moral failures who come to Christ. God loves moral failures and justifies them. 
he, condem- he, he pronounces them righteous, righteous failures for the sake of Christ. And because it is God who justifies us, no one can de-justify us. There is no Supreme Court above God that could reverse his verdict. It is God who justifies. It is God who reinstates us in his good graces. Who is to condemn? I love the way Martin Luther coached us in how to talk back uh, to our own crazy inside, our own self-hatred and self-condemnation. Luther said, When the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. And the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness and despair. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet, for Christ died for sinners. My sin is on his shoulders, not mine. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me greatly. (laughs) God chose sinners as his elect. It says that in verse 33. Why? Because God's deepest purpose is to bring honor to his son as a successful world-class savior. So the gospel is very Christ-centered, and it's really all about how extreme a savior Jesus is for the most hopeless case. Verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So it's already final between the Father and the Son above. So whatever your sin, whatever mine, moment by moment, we can bring it to Christ, all of it, and lay it down at his feet. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. He can take it. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So let's take a look at the enemies of our happiness. Paul inventories them here. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. For starters, that's life for people God loves. Look how he puts it in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The world as one vast slaughterhouse? Yeah. It isn't pretty. But it's true to life. But the Bible says here, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 37. See, Satan thinks he can get us to to turn on God. And when we suffer, we do waver and we weep. But God will not let us go. We are more than conquerors by going through living hell. We all do in this world. 
And we find, to our own amazement, it is the love of God for us that holds on. Not our love for God, but God's love for us. So after we've been body slammed in some unimaginable way, we get back up again, we find ourselves saying, for crying out loud, I have no idea what just happened to me. This is so bewildering. But one thing it can't be is the hatred of God. God has a loving purpose in this somehow. He's going he's gonna to redeem this mess somehow. So I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and keep going and find out how God is going to fix all this because he will. We are more than conquerors by going through unimaginable pain and coming out the other side, believing more deeply in the love of God for us. God will get us there. He will sustain us. So, friends, we're not victims. We're victors by trusting and trusting and trusting in the endless love of God, come what may. So this is what I want you to remember. Your sufferings are not robbing you. Your sufferings are taking you more deeply into the love of God. They always will. God be with you.